0: This episode I'm joined by Simon Sellers. He's a writer, editor, and custodian of Ballardian.com. This episode we're going to be discussing the work of J.G. Ballard and Simon's new book, Applied Ballardianism, Memoir from a Parallel Universe. Enjoy. So the first question is the Hermitics question. um, If you could pick five thinkers, living or dead, and put them into a room, which five would it be?
1: The five thinkers I would put in a room would be, first of all, the three presiding deities of my book, Richard Ballard, of course, then Virilio, then Baudrillard. You know, they're they're prophets of the apocalypse, they're techno-pessimists, they share an interest in speed and velocity. I think also I would like to have Philip K. Dick in that room because, after all, my book is a book about, in part, conspiracy theory and the madness that comes from trying to make connections between things that can't be connected or aren't naturally connected and falling down the rabbit hole in that sense. I think Philip K. Dick would be interesting to uh, have in that room because he's the ultimate paranoid conspiracist, really. And then finally I would have David Cronenberg who has a true knack of almost an uncanny ability to to take multiple threads and make them seem coherent in this one vision that's true to himself. So, for example, Cronenberg has done a straight adaptation of a ballad book, Crash. He's um, done a film which is virtually a homage to Baudrillard, Videodrome. And he's done a film which is virtually a homage to Philip K. Dick, which is Existence. But what he's done is he's brought those all together and made them into one seamless Cronenbergian vision. And in a sense, that's what my book is, is, is trying to do. It's, um, it's bringing all these disparate th- threads that people weave together and bringing them together into a homogenous vision that may or may not be real.
0: That's, uh, that's, a, that's a great room. That's um it's just like a like you say, a homogenous paranoid um very strange. I'm not sure I who I, if if I could figure out who would actually almost take command of that conversation. I imagine Ballard would probably
1: Ballard, when he was on the rare occasion, was asked about French theory, always, you know except for Baudrillard, who I believe he had respect for almost denied knowledge of these theorists. So I think he would be um, a sort of, maybe in a sense, an amused bystander. But yeah, I think I think it would be very interesting. I think it would be paranoia as a means, as a transcendental means to embrace the world, perhaps. So
0: is there, um, is there a question or a way that you'd like their discussion to go in, something that you perhaps would an area you'd perhaps like them to uh, venture into or a question which has kind of always pestered you?
1: Well, I think what happens in my book, if I can speak through the lens of my narrator, is that he struggles to interpret the Bellardian view or internalizes it too much. And what he does is bring in these other theorists as a way to pick that apart. But what it does is send him further and further into the rabbit hole and he much like the characters in Cronenberg's film Existence, goes into various layers of reality until he can no longer find his way home. So I think, in a sense, he sort of abandons the Ballardian vision because I think the Ballardian vision or the vision presented in a lot of Ballard's work is a way of, and Virilio to that extent as well, is a way of accelerating the apocalypse so that something can emerge at the other side. I think for Philip K. Dick and for Cronenberg, it's, it's more a matter of getting lost in that process as well. So, again, speaking through the lens of my narrator, I don't think there's any way to shape that narrative. I think that um, it it's it can either be one of two scenarios. It can end in the apocalypse or it can end in complete schizophrenia and paranoia. I think you just have to let them fight it out and see which way it goes.
0: So if you if you're taking the decision to step into that room, you you you're accepting complete loss of control. Just accept
1: accept what comes of this. I like that. Um, it's possible, or, or the other possibility is they they just may not have very much to say to each other at all, and may see no com commonalities. In that sense, uh, we'd all pack up and go home. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and then it would become a very, very paranoid, kind of nervous room of people wondering why they've even been put there. Especially, I imagine Philip K. Dick would probably be on edge, kind of wondering what the hell's happening. Um, So as as we're um, talking about Ballard, um, I have to ask you how you initially came across his work and began um, an interest in his work.
1: I first encountered Ballard much the same way as the narrator of my book did, um, who, I must say, is, is almost a part of myself, so I will continue to talk through the lens of the narrator. It was a, an edition of ID Magazine from about 1987, but I didn't read it in 1987. I read it about seven or eight years later, when I, just before I started at university, And it was a very strange and unsettling interview with Ballard in which he, I I didn't know vaguely of Baudrillard at that point and the concept of hyperreality, but what Ballard was talking about was very similar to the Baudrillardian notion of hyperreality and immediately got my attention. And he was talking, and you have to remember this is 1987, pre-internet, and he was talking about, in the future, people will start projecting themselves on new mobile private networks. He said they'll start broadcasting their own lives to the world. And I was immediately struck by this because I was reading the interview at the start of cyberculture, or sorry, maybe at the middle of the golden age of cyberculture, and the internet was just starting to take off and so on. And it immediately struck me that Ballard was almost prophesying this, this moment in time that I was living through almost a decade before. And when I looked into more of his backstory, I realised he was making those predictions as far back as 1977. It sounds cliche to say that this is what YouTube, for example, is now, but you go back and read those interviews and it's, it's extremely similar to how the birth of YouTube and the popularity of YouTube had played out. So at the time I was really struck by this and he was talking about television as a cyborg extension of the mind's eye as well. And so he was talking about these these everyday furniture of life, the everyday technologies that surround us, but couching it in this very, very weird, very unsettling cyborg techno body interface, but doing it in this very calm fashion. I mean I think people always characterize Ballard as dystopian but he was almost saying these sorts of things in this very playful fashion almost like it was an evolution that we uh, had no choice but to take take part in this it's almost imperceptible merging of our bodies with with technology it it struck me as this extreme vision but also really just spot on with what was going around, on around us and like I said, the birth of the internet, the popularity of cyberculture, the talk of virtual reality and how we're going to upload our minds into computers, all of that stuff was going on in magazines like 21C, Mondo 2000, and so on. But here was this figure who I vaguely knew from my childhood as a science fiction writer, now seemed to be the father of cyberpunk, for example. So, all of that was a very heady sort of mind explosion for for the young would-be student that I was at the time. So from there, I started reading Crash, and most people know Crash as this extreme work of techno-fetishism, I guess. But once I sort of got over the initial shock of reading Crash, I realised that what he was saying in Crash was exactly like what he was saying in that interview, that these banal technological exoskeletons that we embrace are imperceptibly moving us towards a sort of primitive singularity, if you like, a sort of post-humanism where we're merging with these objects, with these technological objects, without even realising it just through the sheer fact of their ubiquity and our dependence on them. And that's how I got into it, really. And uh, as the narrator describes in the book, it was a life-changing moment. As I said, a lot of people see crashes as this very disturbing and extreme work, and certainly I can still be quite shocked at it. I still pick it up and read it from time to time. But I also found this level of excitement in it as well, where I was thrilled to read something that was so radically uh, upturning the world as I knew it. Okay. So
0: you found your... The um, you saw Ballard as, um, and the narrator sees Ballard as the um, the person who brought to the the fore the thing that already was a like this this layer this very perceptible layer which we all see and know and interact with, but he um, he makes that extremely apparent as to how strange and real the um, I guess you'd call it the 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 lens of kind of techno perception of living through TVs, living through cars, living through technology in general, this big, big thing on top of everything, which is there, but isn't always seen as it kind of almost should be. Um, because it's, it's not generally, um, it's just accepted in a passive way. So does your, do you think the narrative suddenly Ballard makes this thing, which is quite passive, it's suddenly an, an active force for him now?
1: I think that's true. I think when the narrator encounters Crash, the book, and has that moment of his head exploding after reading it, what it does is this is the start of his pursuit of a sort of mirror world or the parallel reality of the um, the book's subtitle because what he gets fixated on is the ambivalence of, of Crash and I think ambivalence is a really key feature of, of Ballard and one of, the, one of his writing's most powerful aspects where you're as I said, I had this thrilling response to Crash, it thrilled me on a very visceral level, almost a sexual level, a fetishistic level, um, but at the same time I could recognise the extreme violence of the thing. And I think the trick that Ballard pulls off, or not a trick so much, the mirror he shines on the world is to show us that ambivalence where we're simultaneously enthralled and destroyed by a technological environment. So Crash shows us this image of car culture as sexy, as seductive, but at the same time it's this destroying force. And to go back to uh, Virilio and Baudrillard, uh, as I said earlier, the narrator starts to make these connections between these three what he would describe as these three deities and all of them speak of this sort of technological ambivalence. Uh, Baudrillard actually wrote an infamous essay on Crash where he asked the question of the novel, he said, is it good or bad? And he said, we can't say, it is simply fascinating. And then he says, that's the miracle of Crash. Uh, Virilio also talks about the accident being the underside of any technological invention. So in Vir- Virilio's, to paraphrase Virilio, when we invent the ship, we also invent the shipwreck at the same time. When we invent the car, we invent the car crash and so on and so on. So for all three of them, the the extreme thrill, the pleasure, the desire to be derived from these uh, technological moments are inextricably linked with the fascination or the sort of death drive to the other side as well. And I think that's what I... Found and what my narrator found so seductive, but I guess the narrator where he comes undone is he cannot pull himself away from the sort of dark underside of that equation. He keeps talking about a concept of Ballard's about where Ballard talks about inner space, the concept of inner space going into a sort of imaginative mind space, and he talks about and Ballard talks about in inner space it's a sort of dream logic where black becomes white or white becomes black and opposites embody the characteristics of their immediate opposite. So in the case of the the seduction of car culture, it's the underside of the car crash. And so the narrator can't pull himself away from that equation. He keeps going to the dark side in a sense. So where Virilio and Baudrillard talk about that sort of, that tension and that balance between the two extremes, the narrator can't sort of apply the brakes. And um, yeah, that's where he spirals. (laughs)
0: Okay. So the, um, so Applied Ballardianism, your book, was that, if we're to flicker between, as you've, you've mentioned, the narrator is in some part you. So if we're to flicker between the two as clearly the narrator as its own person, but also clearly, um, an articulation of your own kind of, uh, journey into Ballardianism, is the book meant as an, uh, an exploration into that that world, that that Ballardian other world
1: It is. I think the concept of inner space, that alternative mind space that Ballard talks about as a sort of reaction to systems of control or reactions to the crowding out of our imagination by external forces I think that is kind of a driving theme of the book so yeah it is an exploration of that but the elements of myself that come into there are you know in some ways the book is what it claims to be it's a it's a memoir from a, a parallel universe so it's it's <laughs> it's kind of me at the time that I was trying to do my PhD on Ballard reading too much Ballard overanalyzing the apocalyptic and dystopian elements and imagining uh, myself essentially living a balladian life. Uh, there's a quote of ballads where he talks about, he talks about, I mean, people often thought that Empire of the Sun, which is his novel based on his childhood in, in Shanghai, was his autobiography, bu- purely for the fact that it was based on ballads wartime years in Shanghai, when Shanghai was occupied by the, the by the Japanese and the ballad family were interned in the uh, Lungwa civilian war camp. But Ballard always said that Crash was his true autobiography. Ballard never in reality crashed cars for fun or tried to maim people or sexually fetishise cars. But he said Crash was an autobiographical novel because it was about his inner life and his imaginative life. And he said it's absolutely true to that interior life, not the life that he actually lived. Um, And he was going through a lot of turmoil after the sudden death of his wife from pneumonia in the um, in the 60s and this sort of came out in this really extreme material the atrocity exhibition for example was written in the wake of that that um, loss of his wife and various other dark stories that he'd written it all cu- it all culminated in crash so I was always really struck by that quote of Valard's how could this extreme novel be his true autobiography and reading more about how he said it was true to his imagination, it really struck me that that's the way I had to write, I had to write the book as well. You know, there's a whole backstory about the, how my book came to be. Mark Fisher originally commissioned it for Zero Books in 2009. It was meant to be a sort of straight translation of my PhD thesis on Ballard into a sort of quasi-academic text. But at the time, I was going through a lot of struggles in academia. I'd just graduated with my PhD. I was struggling to find work. Cultural studies, the sort of discipline i have been trained in, was dead. There were no jobs for, for people like me, especially with someone with such a niche research interest as, as J.G. Ballard. So I was going through all of that and... I was having a lot of dark apocalyptic thoughts and read, simply read too much Ballard. So, but on top of that, there was, yeah, the struggles with academia, the struggles to make a living, the struggles to sort of find myself. So I, inter- I I didn't do it deliberately, but I realized what I'd done later is I'd internalized that quote of Ballard and I'd tried to write an autobiographical novel that was true to my imagination. And because I have a, you know, I've read a lot of science fiction in my life, I've read a lot of apocalyptic science fiction. My imagination naturally turned to that. I guess the other thing that I was going through was uh, after I'd done my PhD, I tried to do various, I tried to turn my research, academic research interests into uh, social media and the impact of social media and so on, the psychological impacts of social media. But Ballard would always bubble to the surface and I couldn't help thinking about some more quotes of his where he said that you know, there's a quote of his to paraphrase where he says that the only way to treat the external world is to treat it as a complete fiction. And conversely, the only true reality is the inside of our heads. And I couldn't help thinking how this was really appropriate in a time of so-called fake news, a time where we can project the most perfect image of ourselves through augmented reality, through social media and so on. But also about how attention spans are supposedly getting shorter, all of this stuff that um, people see as the negative byproducts of the age, it all seemed to speak to this concept of ballads about how all of these fake realities are swirling around and crowding out the ability to think clearly and to have clarity of thought and how the only way to go forward with that is to create your own reality inside the imaginative mind space of inner space. So all of that percolated into this novel which has become my memoir from a parallel universe
0: that's very well um articulated so a memoir of a uh an inner life which you uh kind of mistakenly fell into as a as a means to almost mask your struggles in, in something more exciting than probably the banal reality that they were um do you do you miss that inner space at all is there any is there any part of that memoir where you kind of think that that world would be in some way useful or in- enjoyable again or is um is it entirely um, in the past now
1: there are times when I, I i felt that i wanted to push that mindset or that way of life as far as i could so there are moments of in the novel there are moments of violence that the narrator encounters which are sort of based on incidents Um, that happened to me. When I was going through all of that, you know, I don't think I was a particularly uh, well person in the sense that um, I was going through a lot of sort of internal struggles, trying to make sense of all of this stuff. I seemed to attract a lot of negative attention of the kind that the narrator attracts in the book. And it was kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And yeah, I, I seemed to be a chaos magnet at the time. And all of that was feeding into it as well. So I never thought it was a sustainable philosophy. I felt that if I kept living that way, I, I might not live very long. The way I described it to someone recently, I mean, someone asked me uh, in another interview if they thought applied Ballardianism, that is the theoretical framework that this narrator dreams up, whether that can be a framework for interpreting interpreting the world and I said no one should ever look to that for a conceptual tool unless they're tired of living. The point is that applied Ballardianism almost kills my narrator um, and that really is the point of the book. It's, it's a very unhealthy uh, way to interpret the world and it's also about the dangers of obsession. Um, there's various levels of obsession going through the book. So it's the narrator's obsession with Ballard, mixed in with the narrator's obsession with his girlfriend who's left him and that's a sort of these two themes are sort of weaving in and out of the book it's the obsession with the loss of his academic career and how to get back get that back on track but i also see it as a a book about chasing ghosts so it's the whether it's the ghost of his lost love or the ghost of ballard who could be his true love in fact um it's all about chasing those ghosts and in and so, and in so doing, manifesting a sort of ghost in front of him. I mean, there's a lot of occult and paranormal stuff that goes on through there as well. And again, that refers to what I was saying earlier about the sort of conspiratorial, paranoid mindset of the narrator, where he's having such a, this internal struggle that he has to create this own reality inside his head. And essentially, I guess that's what conspiracy theorists do, is they interpret the world in a way to make, make sense to their diseased mind or their troubled mind or whatever. And again, that's the flip side of, of Ballard that I always keep coming back to is there's, there's a quote that the narrator talks about in the book, which really means something to him and guides him through this, is uh, the Ballard quote where Ballard says, deep assignments run through all our lives, there are no coincidences. Now, in one sense, that's a sort of, you know, that's Ballard's way of saying that we can interpret the world however we want. We can take this set of reality materials and create a new reality as a sort of survival mechanism to crowd out all the other fake realities. But on the other hand, it could be read as this sort of ringing endorsement of conspiracy theory. And that's the sort of equation that the narrator can't can't escape that sort of cycle of thinking so in a sense it's about all of those things it's about trying to make connections where there are no connections it's about chasing ghosts it's about being obsessive and overthinking and all of that and it's also about it's it's about not quite having the tools well the narrator always sees himself as a failed academic he doesn't he has the theoretical tools to really become a true academic or a true philosopher or whatever. So he kind of invents his own. And, um, yeah, you know, and really the book is about spinning out the consequences of that way of thinking. So, yeah, so on, on the one hand, as Ballard sort of describes it, it can be this sort of survival mechanism. On the other hand, it can be, um, you know, a real path to self-destruction.
0: The interesting thing, I think, that you're your book brings um and it's i mean it's in the title because one one can have balladianism, but of course your book brings this idea of application but what you'd previously just said there about kind of entering ballard's world and how you or your narrator um utilized his his view as a way to see the world to the to the point of like self self-apocalypse almost um do you think that it's actually even possible to read Ballard without any hint of application? I'm not sure one could read him at complete arm's length. Uh,
1: you're saying you're not sure? So you're saying that you would have to internalise some aspects of it? I think,
0: yeah, I think the you couldn't read um, well, any of his works, really, without, in some way, in some way it altered your... your your inner world, your mind, your view of the world, and so I think it's it, it, perhaps the the, um, the dangerous part is just how far how far you take that as um, as truth.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people hate Ballard. <laughs> you know, he's still to some extent a, a cult author, despite the success of Empire of the Sun. I think people can tend to be obsessive about Ballard. You know, I've been writing, reading, studying, participating in discussions about Ballard for a long time, and I've seen some protectionism going on of viewpoints that people think that Ballard is about or an interpretation of Ballard. And I guess, in a sense, the book is about that as well. It's about what is it about Ballard that inspires this sort of behaviour in people. And like I said, I've been guilty of it myself, of thinking I've got this one true key to unlock what Ballard's about. But then I've seen other people do that as well, and their interpretation of Ballard is completely different. It's like they're reading a completely different author. And what that's another really, I think it goes back to the ambivalence in Ballard that he's always holding these contradictory sets of opinions. And it it spins out into all these multiple forking paths. And in a way, the book is about working through through that as well. It's about saying, well, what is it about the, the mechanism of Ballard's writing that inspires that? Why do people want to own it? Why do people want to want it to colonize them? Why are people so protective of their viewpoint of what Ballard is about? I can't really think of another writer who inspires so many wildly different interpretations. I mean it even goes down to the level of politics. Um, I've seen right-wing writers say that Ballard is, a, you know, a tool of the left. I've seen, I've heard, read Ballard himself claiming admiration for Margaret Thatcher. But then on the other point, holding these really humanitarian, almost left-leaning views. The man is a massive contradiction. So, uh, he was born in Shanghai, but he's supposed to be English. What is he? Um, is he a science fiction writer or is he not? He always said he started off as a science fiction writer, then he rejected science fiction because the world was becoming science fictional. So I, I think the, a central crux of the book is trying to explore that equation. To go back to your question, I think, yeah, you probably – most people who really get into Ballard do sort of invest a part of themselves in that or a part of Ballard becomes invested in them and yeah it's 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 really interesting maybe maybe you can't sort of read him without without having that that um that reaction
0: it's it's interesting though you say about what what is Ballard because there's an interview or what what is he himself because um he's born in Shanghai and then moved to England but there's an interview where he says about people visiting him visiting him in england and expecting uh something along the lines of the things he writes about so a kind of um i guess he'd say like an acidic cyberpunk crazy drug drug-fueled cyberpunk kind of mess is what they're expecting but they found mm-hmm. a middle class very quiet um in a rural location just this middle class quiet family um the uh, that's what I was going to say. You were saying about how people are, are often have an adverse reaction, uh, often hostile reaction to Ballard's writing, which in relation to what you've said about this this idea of the inner life and Ballard's sitting down as this middle class, quiet Englishman, but when he he goes to sit down, he he says in this interview that he was often appalled and and struck by the fact he could he could even write these um strange and horrible books um so perhaps that people's hostile reaction is in the fact that alongside bringing to the fore the um the strange technological reality he's also he's also um bringing bringing right to the front of people's minds their their ability to even address such horrible possibilities in life
1: to me it 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 really it really sums up um the essence of Ballad. I mean, why why should someone who writes what he writes be a drug-addled cyberpunk maniac? I mean, it, it makes no sense. If you're talking about, you know, if you go back to the conception of Balladian inner space as a space where you can truly be yourself and live out your wildest fantasies, um, it would make sense that you would have this banal surface reality sitting on top of that. I may have lost the thread of your question, though. <laughs> People
0: you you mentioned that people have a hostile reaction often too. um Do you think that's because they, because Ballard's writing is bringing, and maybe this is something your book does as well, is it's bringing to the front of the reader's mind their own possibility to also think in that way, in that kind of um, often asocial or... Um, straight, in, in just in just their own way, to think in, in that strange means?
1: It's possible. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to nail down what exactly makes Ballard tick because I've just spent 400 pages in the book not really coming to a conclusion. All I can suggest is that he... The prescience that I described earlier is... It derives from Ballard's... I think, deep understanding of the psychological forces that shape us through this sort of merger with technology. And he brings home some uncomfortable truths about that. So all of that stuff I mentioned earlier, where he talks about television being a cyborg extension of the eye, of the mind's eye, sorry. And there's a story of his also called the Intensive Care Unit, which talks about similar themes. And it's about a near-future society where people never meet in the flesh everyone communicates behind a private tv screen and everyone has a private video camera that they video their day-to-day interactions with and beam it to their loved ones to their family and what happens at the end of that story is the narrator gets bored with this lifestyle and he decides to bring his family together in the flesh and for the first time ever in their existence they not behind their screens and they're not interacting through screens. They suffer this kind of reality overload and start hacking hacking each other to death with household scissors. And this book really struck me as an evocation of the way that, uh, you know, without descending into cliche here, but the way that people these days, myself included, are welded to our screens in the form of smartphones, our computers, I'm talking to you through Skype, I've never met you, I only really knew your real name until recently. We speak to each other through these avatars, everything is mediated. And, you know, you read news stories about how people get disconnected from their smartphones and they go crazy, they have psychotic episodes, they can't deal with it, their concentration suffers, all of this sort of stuff. Ballard writing that story in 1977, I think that he had this uncanny knack of projecting um, future, near future trends that were rooted in the psychology of how we interact with technology. And I think that's what's really powerful. So he's not actually predicting the nature of technology itself, which is where a lot of science fiction predictions go wrong or they become outdated or whatever. What he's doing is looking at what surrounds us on a day-to-day basis and bringing to light some really uncomfortable truths about the way we're outsourcing our our bodies to technology or outsourcing our memories or our minds or whatever, and in the process saying what does that do to our sense of self or our sense of being? And I think that's what kind of provokes extreme reactions in, um, in, in readers. It's like um, it, it's bringing... Bring it's surfacing this uh, deeply uncomfortable truth. That's certainly the way I've I've um, I've experienced Ballard. Mm.
0: Is it It's uh, it's interesting there as well. You mentioned the in, the intensive care unit where they're all speaking through screens, which is actually the exact um, purpose and and I guess you'd call it plot of the uh, this fantasy, uh, not fantasy, sorry, reality need to emphasise that TV show which is going on at the moment uh, called The Circle which they literally all interact through screens so whether or not that will end in them scissoring and stabbing themselves to death on mainstream TV we'll have to see but it um, and uh, I, this isn't uh, in any way connected to, to that as a segue because otherwise this is going to seem strange but there is a there's an underlying plot in your book which actually in some way it does connect with that idea of real life connection um and all of a sudden having real life connection when you're stuck within that kind of inner life is often something that's ignored and there's um you've mentioned to this uh, this to me before something that's been overlooked or perhaps almost I see it as kind of smothered by the reality that's going on in the narrator's mind as opposed to the actual reality and it's the fact that within your book There's a love story going on. Um, I wondered if you could kind of comment on what what or who Or in what sense is this this underlying love story this strange woman who keeps appearing? What is she to the um, narrator? What is is there a meaning there that you meant that's meant to happen in relation to the Ballardian in a life, or is it a simple case of a romantic love story?
1: <laughs> well, part of me wants to say the the book is at 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 heart a love story. Um, it's a love story with Ballard, I guess, falling out of love with Ballard or or, or becoming too obsessed with Ballard. But it, there's also, as you say, there's that sub narrative of this woman who keeps appearing. Now, if you read enough ballad stories, there's always a mysterious woman, a cipher who who comes in and out of the story, an enigmatic figure. You know, I can try and place an interpretation on what that means in ballad based on his biography and so on, but I think that's kind of banal and a bit crass to do that. But what I will say about my book is that the story of lost love in the book in the in the form of that woman is about it, you know, it's, it's, it's about obsession and it's again going back to obsession and about chasing ghosts. So the narrator has lost this woman or the woman has left him because of his bizarre inward-looking behaviour. She's just simply had enough. She's too smart for him and she can't deal with him. He's a child. He can only see things through the lens of science fiction films she thinks he'll never grow up and he's just dragging her down. So she, she, she leaves him, but he remains obsessed by her because of what she represents when he met her at the time of his life, the way he saw himself, the way he saw saw himself setting himself up in a relationship, all of that sort of stuff. And I think that anyone who's been through deep, possessive, addictive love and has then fallen out of that, um, can kind of relate to that sort of idea of being obsessed by this, this ghostly image of your former partner, your former lover or whatever. I also think of the film La Jete, the Chris Marker short film, and the image of the woman in that, and how she keeps reoccurring in that tortured man's life history. He's never really sure if he's remembering her or if he's time-travelling to the past and actually meeting up with her, or if, he's, or if he's just imagining this woman. And to me, taking that idea of lost love and weaving it into what all of the other inner turmoil that the narrator is going through, so being his mind being crowded out by new realities, new augmented realities, projections through social media, and then he's got this ghostly image of the woman it becomes a kind of metaphor for trying to grasp onto something um in the face of all of that for trying to grasp onto something that was real i guess in much the same way that the woman functions in in la jete it's a you know the man is in a sort of a post-apocalyptic paris in la jete, and the woman reminds him of a time before the war and it was something tangible and something he could grasp grasp onto and hold onto inside his mind as he was going through all of this torment and so I've kind of used it in that way. But, you know, that's sort of that's a bit over intellectualizing. It really is um, a story of lost love. However, there's a third element to it as well. And I can't really talk about it without giving the end of the book away. So there's this sort of other um, kind of science fictional layer on top of that as well. Yeah, so it, it kind of functions on my, many different ways. but. It's interesting to me because um, you know I've done a few interviews about the book and there's been quite a few reviews of the book, but no one has really mentioned the function of the woman. And um, I really did deliberately set her up as that sort of Ballardian cipher, and also that sort of Markarian, as in Chris Chris Marker's cipher as well. She even shares the name of the um, the wife in Crash, by the way, and no one has picked up on that. So so it's good that you have sort of. You've raised that because it it opens up a number of key issues in in the book and and the way you see the book.
0: Um, this is a this is a very as you're bringing up key issues. This is perhaps a a question too bland and almost stripped to ask of your book. But is there is there a key issue you you wish to address by kind of by writing down by writing down your journey? Was was that almost a a kind of SOS letter to um, to people who other people who may be going down that that rabbit hole is it is this like a a warning almost from a par- parallel universe as well um, so is it you know is it is there is what are the other issues that you you wish to address with the look book?
1: I guess I guess another sort of key motivation was going back to the difficulties I had finishing my PhD you know in many in many ways I felt that. I was researching something of, of, of great importance. And, you know, I still believe that the prophecies Ballard unleashed on the world are, are like really, you know, they're, they're, they're really important in the way that our technological society is developed. And I think that, you know, he's on a par with people like McLuhan as a sort of forecaster of the way our technology will transform us or evolve us or whatever, or devolve us. And so at the time I was thinking this was really important research, but I was having, like I said earlier, I was having trouble finding an academic job. You know, treating a treating a novelist as a philosopher was not something that was ever going to win you any kudos. It was too lowbrow for, philosoph- for philosophy departments and it was too highbrow for, for literature departments. It was sort of this really super niche area. And so I guess... And, you know, I I first started university and I first started my PhD um, when uh, cultural studies was sort of in, I guess, its second golden age. Um, You know, it was in the midst of that sort of cyber culture. Uh, Cultural studies was some, you know, it was very, it was very sexy. It was very glamorous. You know, there was a lot of glamorous theorists involved in cultural studies. And I sort of started amongst that time. It was very seductive. And I quit my PhD because I, you know, I had a, a, yeah, I had a lot of stuff going on, and I quit it, and I came back to it ten year uh, ten years later, and the whole landscape had changed. Cultural studies was a, was a joke, in that sense. I mean, if if you've read Don DeLillo's White Noise, it's a whole book that spends virtually its entire length lampooning the sorry state of cultural studies, really, and that's where we'd sort of landed. You know, it was like awakening in a parallel universe to find that everything had changed, and suddenly. The stuff I was into was not taken so uh, seriously anymore. And, you know, academia had become this sort of um, heavily heavily monetized, heavily um, undead version of itself. People have talked about the zombie academy where the sort of, um, you know, anything for the sake of pure research is, is, um, is, uh, is put aside for the need to make research dollars. So the need to bring research dollars in and what that does to a pure research culture, for example. And, you know, I came back to that sort of environment and I sort of lamented that, um, that, that lost age of, of, of really exciting cultural studies. And I guess going through that struggle of, of trying to fit in into this new environment I was trying to say something about that and I was trying to say something about how how it had all become so stale and how it would all become a straitjacket for just this pure sort of money-making exercise, I guess, and how I, I, I felt on the outside and I felt like a, um yeah, complete outsider to all of that, but I still had this research interest that wouldn't go away and I still wanted to write about Ballard and I still wanted to say something about Ballard, even if I don't really come to any conclusions so all of that was going on. So yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a lamentation of that that sort of era, but at the same time trying to um, work through what comes next. And I don't think there is really any answer in the book about what comes next. In terms of a warning, I mean, I guess it's also about the struggles of doing a PhD. I, mean, I think that anyone who's done a PhD, no matter on what topic, um, you know, it can become a very isolating experience, especially if you're. A single person like i was who'd just gone through a bad breakup and you're sort of on your own living on your own you don't really go out to campus to meet people you're spending all this time inside of your head there's no real support networks you can, i guess you can get it's different these days i guess with, with um various um online communities but certainly when i was going back to finish my phd there wasn't really really a lot of support and um it's kind of why I set up the website, com as well, was to try and find a community of like-minded people. So I guess it's about all of that. I mean, I guess if there's a warning signal to anyone, it might be to people starting a PhD. I don't know.
0: Okay. As, um, just one final little thing before we perhaps finish, unless there's anything you want to add. But it's interesting that you mentioned about where where you're at now because now it's clear that this this constant need to almost like expel that interest and that ra- that rabbit hole of ballardianism like to get that down to get that out to get that done whether it whether or not it's in the form of your phd or in the This uh, applied Bolardianism. The book is now this your kind of extended PhD. So you're talking about now and after the book was was there a big moment of catharsis or has writing the book actually just moved the stone as opposed to like unturning it, overturning it?
1: I thought there would be a sense of catharsis, but I I I honestly believe the book is thrown up even more questions look i'll be honest with you i don't i've just given you a few motivations for why i thought i wrote the book but i don't really know why i wrote it and i don't really know how it came out in this form it wasn't a conscious decision for example i mean people talk about this book about being theory fiction right but when I was writing it, I didn't make this conscious decision to say, oh, I'm going to write this piece of theory fiction. I didn't even know that was a so-called genre or a movement or whatever. It just seemed the only way that I could make sense of all of that stuff that I was going through. And so the theory part of my book is like, there's, you know, there's sentences, sometimes whole paragraphs that are lifted from early drafts of my PhD, and they sort of exist – in the book as articulations of the theoretical mess that the narrator is finding himself in. But they're sort of trace elements of this old life. So it's kind of like that reality bleeding through. And so, as I said, it was originally commissioned by Mark Fisher for Zero Books. And I, I took so l- I remember spending three years on the first chapter, and I just couldn't get past that first chapter. And I just didn't know how the hell I was gonna write this. And then I lost the zero contract because I'd taken so long and I hadn't produced anything. And then I just, I just, the next couple of years are really a blur. I would sit down at the computer most nights, almost like on autopilot and start to just, you know, it was almost like automatic writing, whatever came out and it sort of came out in this form. That was cathartic. I remember that was cathartic at the moment I hit upon this sort of hybrid form of the way I wanted to write it. But then, it was it was it was really jarring the theory was jarring with the fiction and i just i kept thinking i've got to write this as a novel i've got to write it this as a novel but the theory bits kept intruding so i kind of hadn't hadn't cleansed my system of that aspect of myself and i just kept at it and kept at it and it was a very torturous process because you know it's technically very difficult to pull something like that off i mean writing a novel would have been a straight novel would have been way easier So it was cathartic in the sense that I felt like I'd expunged that theoretical aspect of myself and I don't see myself as a theorist. I don't see myself as a philosopher. Since my book has been released, people have had all these theoretical discussions about it, but I feel I can't really contribute to that. I've just put this book out there in the world as an object and people are interpreting it in all these different ways and that's fantastic. But to ask me about what the book is about and whether I feel it's purged something in myself, I kind of think it has, but I don't really know. I don't think I've fully rid myself of it. I have in mind a sequel to the book and it would take place in a sort of even more of a disembodied world than the one in this book. Ballard would be even more of a peripheral figure in that one. So I guess I've still got the ideas percolating around and I've met a lot of people who've been, I mean, some people have hated the book. I, I'll fully admit that it's not a. Bo- it's going to be a polarizing book. It's not going to appeal to everyone, and that's fine. But a lot of people have been said to me they've been quite inspired by it, or it's mirrored aspects of their own experience in this really uncanny way, or they've been completely bamboozled by it, but still fascinated by it. And to me, that's a really satisfying reaction, and that's kind of cathartic in a sense as well, because that's the. I guess that's. That's really the overriding sense that I get from Ballard's book is this sense of mystery and what is this object? What does it mean? It's affecting me on this deep level, but I don't really know what it is. I think at this point you should talk about your review of the book because I thought your (laughs) review of the book was really great and you were talking about that sort of bamboozlement at picking up my book (laughs) as these objects. I thought that was fantastic because it's kind of the impression I want. I don't want it to inspire any sort of easy answers or any easy connections if people hate it that's fine if people um, like it it's great but it was bamboozling to me and if it's bamboozling to other people that's completely fine
0: yeah um i guess in short my review can kind of be condensed to just someone kind of finishing it up and saying well what the hell am i supposed to do with this but in in a nice way you know um kind of you you've now gained all this strange almost second-hand knowledge so it's like you're you're learning ballardianism from somebody else who's clearly interpreting ballard in quite a dangerous way um so you kind of begin application of the book yourself to your your own life which perhaps you're also doing in a dangerous way and then once you realize that you you're kind of not entirely sure where to go, but I think that's that's a, a nicer, not nicer, that's a silly, silly word, a, a better conclusion than, or if you can call that a conclusion, but that's a better way to, I think, finish up a book than just a, the, the, if, if there was a neat conclusion at the end of the book, I'd be somewhat disappointed and probably even think that that person hasn't really understood Ballard too well, because... The only conclusions Ballard really ever gave within his own works were when they were within kind of small, walled-off societies, which almost always went wrong because they were aiming for a conclusion. So perhaps if you were to wall it off, it's just going to kind of implode if you were to do that anyway. Yeah,
1: I don't think any theory can encapsulate Ballard, as I've sort of outlined, and I think you're right. Any attempt to sort of wall it off and limit its mysterious power is, is kind of defeating the purpose. I think, um, Ballard continues to uh, inspire me in a way that I never thought possible when I first started reading him. I can't believe I'm still writing about him. Um, what is it now? It's almost 25 years um, later since I first wrote my first article on Ballard. Yeah, it's kind of an obsession. To go back to your point about catharsis, I think there is a catharsis because I I feel free now. I kind of feel like I can write about other things, you know. I I've um yeah I I don't know. I, I could write a book about gardening or a cookery book or something. I really don't know. All I know is that I've purged Ballard for now, and that's kind of liberating in the sense that um, I think my education at the feet of Ballard is 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 done. I think it's finally complete. It's kind of like you know um, subscribing to a guru for a number of years, and then you finally realise, "Hey, I'm done here." So that's kind of like how it is.
0: Okay, I think that's um, that's a good place to finish up. Uh, unless unless there's something else that I've missed, or something you'd like to add.
1: No, look, I, I think that that covers it. I um I uh, yeah. Look, I, I don't know how this is going to fit in your other podcast series, which I've enjoyed very much, by the way but i hope it's um yeah, i hope it's have been some interest to you